G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. A focus today on another of those outstanding Australian military heroes as we prepare to commemorate the centenary of the end of World War I. Today, a conversation about General Sir John Monash as one of the most famous army officers involved in World War I. His brilliant strategies brought the final victory on the Western Front and alongside the likes of Harry Chevelle, he led five brigades of light horse troops to carry out General Allenby's breakthrough plan and end the Ottoman Empire in the Middle East. Well, Victorian listeners will be especially aware of the Monash name, having both a Monash Freeway and Monash University named after this remarkable man. Roland Perry is joining us. He's one of our nation's best-known military historians. He's written numerous books about some of our most outstanding Australian heroes and produced as many as 20 documentary films. A focus today on the subject of his 17th book, the critically acclaimed Monash, The Outsider Who Won the War. Our privilege to talk to Roland Perry about John Monash. Roland, welcome along to 2020. Thank you very much, Neil. Uh, Roland, before we start to talk about some of the significance of this man's background, there just recently was a bill introduced in the Victorian Parliament to elevate him not just from status of general but to the level of field marshal. You've been following that along. That is quite a significant move, isn't it? Yes, it's a huge move. And I say my perspective, Neil, is that once Monash gets that elevation, and it will happen, um, once he gets that, then people's attention will be drawn to why. And the why brings in the 166,000 diggers he had under him at the end of the war and the incredible impact they had, which has been buried, unfortunately, by avalanche of uh, not great historical documentation. And what I've been able to do, and I'm not alone in this, um, is to look at much more information than was available in the 1920s to work this all out. Much more. The German archives, the, even the British, which weren't open to us. The Australian War Memorial wasn't built till 34. Um, the Canadian archives, German archives, you name it, and you can get into them now. If you've got the time, and this is a critical factor, the Monash biography took me three years writing and researching, and I've that was in 2004, and I've not stopped researching. So we have access to a lot more, and the impact of the diggers is just absolutely amazing. On the 8th of August, as you well know, um, they smashed through two German armies with the Canadians on their right flank. And the Germans, and this is where I've got into the research that others seem to have, I don't know, either missed it, don't want to look at it, but every German of any any position in World War One said that finished us, that battle, we could only defend after that, we were defeated. They then, you know, they then were on the run back to Germany after that particular battle. But it didn't end there, Neil. I mean, there was, there was a 100-day blitzkrieg that Monash led those troops. 
They took on 39 divisions and defeated every one of them in the biggest blitzkrieg in history. Forget Europe in World War II. This was the first real blitzkrieg using tanks and just storming through. And it was Monash who said, we've got to finish it in 1918. He, like all these men, were completely fatigued after some of them, Monash, of course, two, four years on the front, on, on fronts in Gallipoli and in the Middle East, sorry, in the, in, in the Western Front and the Middle East too. So this was very important, and, and it's not understood. It will be. We're, we're dragging people over the line on this because there is no argument about the impact the diggers had if people do their homework and show integrity in what they're looking at. You're talking about the Battle of Amiens. Yeah, and uh, France, 120 kilometres north of Paris. And you're suggesting uh, that your research is showing that the significance of that battle is much, much more than uh, typically in history we've been led to believe, uh, but there's lots more information that's coming out as to how significant that battle was. Yes, well, I think people have got to see it strategically. It was, as I said, very close to Paris, and the German uh, chief of all forces, Commander Erich Ludendorff, told the Kaiser that this time they're going to win it. They were going to go barrel through uh, Amiens and down to Paris. And we all know what happened in World War II when the Germans got through Amiens and that area. They, the, the French then capitulated. And Monash knew this. He had his history... Well, he'd, sorry, he didn't know about what was happening, but he knew that they were going to... They were planning to do this. Now, he said, we have to stop them because if... They got through Amiens. It was a rail junction, a very important town. If they got through, then they march on to Paris. Only French troops would be there because they were defending. They were falling back when Monash actually wanted them to come and fight with him. He switched the Canadians onto his right flank. But the French wanted to defend Paris. And uh, they were going to do that, and Monash and everyone knew that they could not stop the German army. And that meant, it's simple logic, we could, we'd have to be out of it because we can't fight on French soil if the French aren't fighting. And this is what happened in World War II. And it would have happened, first of all, in World War I had Monash not bolstered them and had a tremendous counterattack strategy. He used 650 tanks, 800 planes, all of them piloted at his demand by Australian pilots, all of them, which is another fact that people seem to have slipped by. Um, and he had his... Uh, Army of conscripts, British conscripts, conscripts on his left flank, which he had no confidence in whatsoever. His own 166,000 ready to go. And then on the right flank, he brought the Canadians in. And the way he got the Canadians in was to say, this is not a British battle. This is a Dominion battle. And the reason being, Neil, the Canadians would not fight under the British flag after the horrors of Passchendaele in November the year before. So Monash went to Arthur Curry, the general running the Canadian, and said, look, this ain't a British battle. This is a Dominion battle. And the penny dropped for Arthur Curry, and he came in on Monash's right flank. And those two armies destroyed the two German armies in front of them, which began the capitulation of the Germans over the next six to eight weeks, really, well into, uh, well into November and, uh, sorry, into October, then November. So... After these major battles, the, the Americans came in, a sledgehammer smashing a walnut, basically. Roland, so the result of those efforts from Monash and those diggers, yep. literally preventing Germany from becoming a military dictatorship and Correct. the winning of World War One, 
Let me ask you about the idea of uh, military dictatorships versus what Monash had been exposed to with democracy in Australia, because I know that there were some other political issues when he got home from the war, and and there were some moves to uh, have some level of uh, dictatorship even established in Australia, but uh, he fought very hard to make sure that our democracy was maintained. Is there connection between all of these moves? A lot of people went off to war. The young diggers went off. It was a holiday for them. Of course, it was the horrors of, of Gallipoli that happened. A lot of them were fighting for the British Empire. That was the propaganda. Monash was the first one to say, you're doing this for Australia and the, the system we live under. Because he knew and was predicting that military dictatorship would run Germany be, before long. And he was absolutely correct on, on the money. By the middle of, well, the end of 16, 1916, Ludendorff was in charge. The Kaiser was nothing. He was out of it. Um, that that was it. I mean, you, the, the Hindenburg was just a blimp who was a PR. You know, he was just a front. So it was Ludendorff was running it, and he wanted a military dictatorship. He wanted to rule that way. In fact, he talked about permanent war to run to keep the country going. I mean, this was the insanity of the mentality of the Prussians, who had uh, been in terrific force there in the 19th century and into the 20th. So this is what Monash he knew because he had a German background. And he knew the mentality of the Germans better than anyone outside Germany. In fact, he was writing over to German uh, makers of everything from... Uh, or you can think of any weapon they were making from armoured cars to artillery. He was finding out what they were doing because they thought, oh, this is... He'd be writing to the private companies like Krupp. And he'd say, well, what are you doing? And he'd be writing in German. This strange fellow from the other side of the world would be writing to them and they'd be saying, well, we're doing this and we're going to manufacture that and we're going to have 100,000 of those and we're selling to, as one of, one, one of the Krupp people said to him, we are going, we're selling to 50 countries around the world, including our own. So they were boasting about the military build-up. And uh, Monash was very aware of it. And then, as you rightly say, in the 20s, when he got back, there was attempts from the left in the early 20s to say to him, be like Mussolini, we want you to be dictator, because this man had been so dominant in the war. And by the way, every Brit who analysed this properly at the time, not the ridiculous revision we have uh, in the last 20 or 30 years, every Brit at the time of any importance, from Churchill to Montgomery of Alamein to the Prime Minister Lloyd George, you name it, there was no other general mentioned as, as number one. And Monash said, well, we won that war, we won that democracy, uh, we defeated a military dictatorship, and I am not going to lead uh, uh, soldiers now to take over the government. In the early 20s, of course, the government was in Melbourne, and the left was urging him to be like Lenin. This is what they were saying in letters to him. I've read all the uh, archives, and in interviews, he was being asked, will you you know, march on the government? Because he had 177,000, as that was then, diggers who would have picked up a rifle at the snap of his fingers and marched with him. And he was dead against it, absolutely dead against it. In the late 20s, they were saying to him, be like Mussolini, because we were riding into a, a Depression era and he was being urged to take over Canberra at that point. And he wrote the most brilliant letter, I think, ever written in Australian history to a right-wing military general called Grimwade in Sydney and said, you know, I am not going to commit high treason we are not going to be uh, like um, the Russian Revolution. I do not believe in dictatorship. It's all uh, we're not going to. I'm not going to do it now. 
His last line in that letter, if I can recall, is the most brilliant bit of logic and cut down you'll ever see in print. And it's very simple. He said, if you trust to my leadership, then you must trust to my judgment. Bang, game, set and match. Well, what a fascinating take on that, Australian no history. answer to that, Neil, after that was 1930, and he just cut dead a real push for a military takeover. And they all knew, all the people wanting him to, to do it, knew that no one else would be able to muster those troops, and he just cut them dead. There's not only one occasion, he did it in speeches, in interviews, but there's one letter that's... Uh, just brilliant in its simplicity. I think it's the greatest letter ever written in our history because it set a pattern for the next hundred years in the mentality of Australia about dictatorship. You know, we fought against it again in World War II, against the Japanese, a military dictatorship. Uh, we've maintained that democracy, and you cannot name one military person since that era in the 20s who's put up as someone who would take over the country. There's never even been a sniff of it. Now, the reason I'm very aware of that is that I live half the time in Southeast Asia. I travel a lot. In the last six months, I've been to five countries. And four of them had military di or dictatorships, and a couple of them were military dictatorships. No democracy. No real human rights. And you suddenly realise, you know, you're not that far from Australia, and we are in a a sea of tranquility as far as democracy is concerned here. And it's all due to the mentality of Monash articulating it so directly and doing it. You know, not only did he defeat military dictatorship, he then backed it up. His ego did not run to being prime minister or leader under those false pretenses. Roland Perry, let's take a short break. And if you're happy to come back and continue talking about this topic, uh, appreciate that very much. It's just a fascinating take on our Australian history over this past hundred years. Uh, let's continue our conversation in just a short while. Roland Perry, one of our nation's best known military historians and in the lead up to Remembrance Day, November 11, talking about John Monash and some fascinating history and I'll pick up on some things that you're talking about post-war in just a short while. Talking about some fascinating Australian history and a reflection on one of our greatest military heroes, John Monash. And we're talking today with Roland Perry, who's one of the nation's best-known military historians, and we've been touching on just the most fascinating history, even to a point where Australia was on the verge of anticipating a military dictator leader as far back as 1920. Uh, Roland Perry, as we talk about this great man, John Monash, and you say, if you're going to trust me as a leader, trust my judgment, you do not want a dictatorship. And then he worked very hard in post-World War I Australia uh, to establish some things that gave us a level of stability that we haven't looked back on for a 100 years. Uh, he did work hard after World War I and made a tremendous impact in the things that he was involved in. Yes, well, he um, it was a bit limited to Victoria, although right up into Queensland and Western Australia, he put up 120 constructions as an engineer uh, before the war and was still involved in that sort of thing. Um, there are great bridges built that are still standing. The Flinders Street Bridge in Melbourne, Prince's Bridge, should be renamed Monash's Bridge now, but it, 
there's that. I mean, the University of Monash is named after him. Also, the Yalorn Power Station was one uh, of his projects too, wasn't it? What's that, sorry? The Yalorn Power Station. Yes, well, I was coming to that. SEC, the State Electricity Commission, what a brilliant uh, mind he had. He was able to build that from scratch. It's like starting a $50 billion operation a day from scratch. Uh, and it's a lovely background story. When the war was finished and he was about to depart, he had a special convoy, an SAS-style commando unit, go to Germany and, shall we say, purloin all the technology for developing coal-fired station, right, yeah. way back, and uh, using brown coal, and he stole it. He got it to Victoria, and then he uh, b- began the State Electricity Commission because he'd been cut off from going into federal politics by... Uh, Billy Hughes was very jealous and knew that he would be Prime Minister. There would be no question, no question he would have been elected had he got a seat. But Billy kept him out of the country till the end of 1919 and had an election just as he got back, so there was no time for him to stand. So he was left uh, with something to do, and the state electricity, the, the government in Victoria said, well, you've got all that technology for us. How about you start the State Electricity Commission? And then it was a cute move, and I loved this side of him. He said, right, I'm going to employ the best German technologists, the best German technicians um, to come over and create the State Electricity Commission. And that would have been a shock after World War I. Billy Hughes was apoplectic and Monash just stared him down and said, look, the war's over, get over it. I want the best for our country. These blokes are the best in the world and they're going to design it. And that was what he did. He got them out of here. Let me ask you... He was eight years, you know, just his intellectual side was phenomenal as well. Eight years as vice-chancellor of Melbourne University. Unpaid job as it was, but, I mean, he just did an amazing job. He was very much into education. Uh, let me take you back to the battlefields of World War One, just to pick up on another dimension of John Monash. We mentioned earlier he came from a family. His father was German, but his mother was a Jew, and no, both were German Jews, both of them. Both German Jews. All right. Yep. I wonder whether uh, there is connection here about being up against the Germans, uh, leading Australian and other, and including the American forces, uh, yep. against the Germans, whether anti-Semitism in Germany in World War One was simmering along that was enabled to come to the fore perhaps in World War Two. Do you, do you have any thoughts on, on his, his background? Uh, and yes. uh, and issues to do with the Germans I there. I don't think I would be certain that he would never have emerged the way he did in our free country in, with our system. He would never have got the ride because he he had that Jewish side to him and background, and that that would the Germans the Prussians would never have allowed him. He would have had to have changed his name and done you know called him Mac Mac Monash or something, you know. <laughs> Or whatever you put the German equivalent to, to get a to get a ride up there into the Prussian army or to do anything in law. Don't forget, he was a brilliant, uh, brilliant barrister. I mean, he beat the greatest jurist of the time, happened to be a Jew, Sir Isaac Isaac, our first Governor General, beat him in their only court case encounter, and Monash beat him. So, this guy was phenomenal. He never lost a case in fifteen years as a uh, as a as a lawyer and barrister. So, no, I don't think he would have got the ride that he did. There was certain anti-Semitism in the Australian uh, mentality towards him. There was a lot of racism. C.E.W. Bean, our uh, esteemed, I put in quote, quotes, uh, 
uh, official historian was very anti-Monash because he was Jewish. He used to articulate it very clearly in articles. He didn't want a Jew running the army. He wanted an Anglo background and so on and so on. And it was pretty virulent stuff. I mean, there was a lot of anti-Semitism because of ignorance. I mean, they didn't know what it meant to be a Jew, you know. And so Monash copped it quite a bit, but he copped more, Neil, for being a German background. Can you imagine during the war... Well, I was going to say, uh, being German might have been even worse than being a Jew, if uh, in that mindset. I, think that, I, I don't think I know that the hysteria was about his German background. And, uh, in fact, a year after he was heavily involved at the beginning in Anzac, the government decreed that no one was born, you know, with a German background, in other words, parents born in Germany, was allowed to fight on the front line against the Germans uh, for our country. And there was a guy called Bruch, B-R-U-C-H-E, I think is the spelling, um, who wasn't Jewish, but he was German background, and he was, Monash regarded him as a really outstanding soldier, brilliant soldier, so he would have been brilliant on the front. He was reduced to being, um, you know, on the home front in England, basically running running stores and things, when he should have been on the front line helping Monash out. So it was pretty virulent, and the rumour was that uh, after Gallipoli, where he did pretty well, and especially under the British eyes, they thought this guy could be elevated at some point. Uh, the question was, and was remarked in uh, Australian Parliament everywhere, in the federal, sorry, in the state Parliament, uh, yes, he can kill Turks, but will he kill Germans? That was in 1915. So it was pretty vicious and hostile stuff, and Monash seemed to have a wonderful uh, mentality about all, all this. He never, ever bothered about it. He just got on. He just, I think he knew he was so superior to everyone around him without saying it that he did, it didn't matter what they called him, he was going to do what he had to do. Well, with such a remarkable background and uh, a remarkable rise and certainly wasn't afraid to kill Germans in World War One. Roland well, Perry, we're coming up to the 11th of November. It's the yeah. commemoration, it's the centenary of uh, the end of World War One. What are your concerns, very quickly, about young people? Are they familiar with much of our military history? Undoubtedly not, but it really gives us an opportunity around these particularly special occasions uh, to be able to raise these sorts of issues and recognise our heroes. Yes, well, unfortunately at the moment, Neil, our history is coming under the, the down negative cycle, if you like. Uh, in other words, it's not taught other than a handful of schools properly in the secondary school area, uh, and it's certainly not getting the emphasis it should at tertiary level. It is pathetic, sad in the true sense of the word pathos, uh, it will come back, and I'm encouraged by the fact that a lot of young people are much more aware of Anzac, at least, which is only an infinitesimal part of the story, as we know. I mean, what happened in the Middle East and what happened on the Western Front under Monash, particularly, is just phenomenal in terms of the impact we had. 1918 was, without question, the only year that we had an impact on the world stage, and for a very positive reason, as we discussed, to get rid of you know, to, to fight off uh, military dictatorship. It will come back. I'm very confident about it, Neil. I think that articulation of it, it'll defy all the um, academics who just don't comprehend, don't want to associate it with war, and that's bad. Of course, we know that, but let's know and understand our history, please. You know, I mean, it'll come back, though. I, I have no question. Hopefully in my lifetime, I'll see it more understood, but I'm more confident about the kids now than I was when I was a kid myself, because I 
all I did was remember that it was a bleak old day, Anzac Day, uh, and didn't know what it was about. I knew it was something to do with fighting the Turks, and my father used to say, say on the you know on the football field, fight like a Turk, you know all that stuff. But we didn't really comprehend on the level that's available now for people like myself and other historians to really get out the information, you know, and really show what happened. Um, and I started with that base of why why every major Brit said Monash was the greatest general of World War One, not just amongst the Australians, which is a, often there was sort of a feeble commentary on this, but on the Allied side. And the other little point that we haven't said was that we had the single biggest army corps on the Western Front. Mm. Little Australia, a backwater of four and a half million people, had the biggest single corps, that's functioning army, under Monash. Sometimes there were 208,000 because everyone, all the other allies, wanted to park their armies or divisions or brigades with Monash to learn and because he was a winner in the rather, you know, the sporting vernacular. This man was a winner. And so he had a lot of people under him. But people don't understand, we were not fighting above our weight. We were the weight at the critical moments in 1918. Well, it is fascinating to talk to you, Roland. And let me say that there will be a lot of commemorations and special gatherings that will be happening around the nation on the 11th of November this year. And Roland Perry, you'll be participating in the centenary function at the Memorial Hall Scotch College Hawthorne in Melbourne on that day. And I know you'll be telling the story of John Monash. And undoubtedly, uh, if you tell it the way you've told it to us today, uh, people will hang on every word. Uh, let me point well, people to... Thank you, Neil. I've got 15 minutes. It's his old alma mater, Scotch College in Melbourne. And so I hope I can do it justice in that short time. Well, let me point listeners to your 17th book, the critically acclaimed Monash, The Outsider Who Won a War. Uh, Roland Perry, thank you so much for taking time to share your thoughts with us today on 2020. And thank you for your time, Neil. I very much appreciate it. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.